Hello, everyone. Welcome back for the long-awaited episode 19 of Wake Up Call. Uh, sorry about the fact that we haven't been as active this year. I have personally just been completely swamped with um, work this semester. So we haven't had the time. We've also been dealing with, you know, just a bunch of other stuff. But we're back now for episode 19. Uh, actually, Milda, you and I haven't spoken in a while. What are you? What have you been up to in the in the past month? Yeah, hi everyone. Well, I had a very long vacation in January. I was back in Lithuania for the whole month. Now I'm just starting my new semester of studies, so it's been pretty low-key. Um, I started a job as a public speech instructor as well, so those are the highlights. What about you? Yeah, um, <laughs> my highlight has mainly been school and my research projects and, and, and things like that. Um, a lot of that, a lot of work, but my band's also been playing a couple of shows here and there um around Montreal um so that's been a positive highlight um from from this past month um but yeah not really much one thing I wanted to say before we got started though Milda bear with me here is I just want to uh give a little update on where the whole emergencies act situation that we've talked about on this that I've talked about on this podcast many times um where that situation stands right now so as of the filming of this podcast about an hour, hour and a half ago, the official report on the Emergencies Act and whether it was justified or not, um, it was released to the public to see. And what they found is that given the circumstances, um, Justin Trudeau was uh, correct in his use of the Emergencies Act. The the high threshold that we talked about, um, according to the, to the court um, and the Rouleau Commission, it was met. Um, and obviously, you know, that I didn't think it was met, but I'm not a legal expert. Paul Rouleau is a longtime justice. He knows a lot more about Canadian law and whether this sort of stuff was justified. Uh, he knows a lot more about that than I do. So, um, you know, we accept the committee's findings and I was basically incorrect, um, as much as it pains me to say that. But yeah, that's, that's, that's the situation on the ground right now. It's good to accept that you're not correct sometimes, but you can still have your own opinion. You know, the law can be changed, so it's fine. Yeah, true, true. Um, yeah, I just, I really just wanted to bring everyone up to speed on that situation. I still stand by the fact that I think that the liberals made the situation turn into a situation that required the Emergencies Act. They were responsible for the situation, but hey, you know, I'm not, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not, I'm not right about everything, and. Uh, in, my opinion happens to contradict with the opinion of one of the foremost legal scholars in Canada. I would personally trust his opinion over some random schmuck that just thinks about politics once in a while. Fair enough. Okay, so I guess we can start the episode for today. We're going to talk about politics and ideology. I'm going to start off. Um, it's funny because actually our topics are a bit interconnected in some ways, so we can ask each other certain questions. But I wanted to talk about how we have been seeing a very big trend of countries, Western liberal democracies, moving further right, and specifically moving further to authoritarianism. I feel like once we're living in certain current situations, just, you know, doing our daily routines, we don't really notice that we're living in such an important time in history. I mean, research says that right now we're living in the third wave of 
the phenomenon in politics that's called autocratization, which is basically the fall of democracies moving towards autocracies. And I just thought that it's so interesting and we really need to be able to identify it, to know its traits and to know what to do about it. So I want to talk about that today. But to start off, I just wanted to talk about, once again, the political spectrum and how really hard it is to find a center in the Western world. Because I feel like when we imagine the political spectrum, at least I, when I imagine it, it's a big line, you know, with the, the far left being anarchism and the far right being fascism. But I feel like in the West, since we have such a normalized idea of what is a just society, that being liberal, capitalist, representative democracy, our political spectrum becomes much, much more narrow. There is no real representation of anarchism or socialism or communism in most Western countries, that being Europe, that being the United States, Canada. Um, and I feel like that's our whole political spectrum and the line is more just down the right. And yeah, there's still center left, but the assumption of politics still lies within sort of the the right wing ideology. And okay, that's I, I, I want to I want to jump in for a question because I think that this is a, a question that naturally arises from from the sort of uh, line of thinking. And it's it's a more philosophical question, but where do you think that a, that a country's what do you think determines what a country's national political identity is is like? I'll give you like my take on this question, like my answer to this question. Right. In America, the country is so far right because it reflects generally what its population is demanding. In a, in, in a democracy, it's the people that are voting it in. Obviously, it's an oversimplification, but like, you know, Trump would not be popular in America if, if he did not have some broad based appeal within within American society. So do you think that that the, that the choice of ideology really is just downstream of what the public demands are? Yeah, I think there's a couple of ways to answer this question. Firstly, I think in my worldview, that is not only the people who influence the politicians, but also the politicians that influence the people. So I would say a lot of our ideas about what is just is also influenced by political ads and narratives. Anti-immigrant ideas are not necessarily natural to humans. Maybe to some they are, of course. I'm not saying that that's not true, but a lot of politics get influenced by what people in power want to see people believe. But secondly, I think it's very like kind of uh, divided because in the economical spectrum, I think there is one hegemonous culture, which is capitalism. Um, it has been this way since the IMF spread its influence. And, you know, just from the 90s, it has been the way in this Western world. When talking about more specific issues regarding culture or politics, it might be different just based on the culture and the history of countries, of course. But what really lies at the base, the economics is kind of hegemonous in my eyes. So, yeah, I wanted to build that kind of uh, base that everything in my view is a bit more right leaning. And that's why it's so hard to find a center and even 
people who think that they're not really right-leaning might actually be more right-leaning than they think they are. And I'll give you a couple of examples. I feel like we have normalized things in society that are inherently authoritarian, but they're normalized to the extent where we don't know it is that they are. First of all, this can just simply look like nationalism. Um, and also, I've been already talking about anti-immigrant propaganda. I mean, look at the United States, Donald Trump building a wall to keep out the immigrants. Look at France and their policies against immigrants. Many countries with far-right or right-wing parties in power want to have this very nationalistic view. And I mean, what does this remind you of, right? This, remind you, this reminds you of me of very far-right uh, parties in history and that never led to anything good. Secondly, it's just pure authoritarianism that we can see in many countries nowadays. Um, and this can, you know, go from something as little as raising kids. I'm kind of surprised by how many people still think that beating your kid with a belt is normal and like making kids more disciplined this way is normal. But actually, according to research, according to opinions that is still very widely accepted in the West, but this can also just be more broadly political, like having less freedom of expression, banning certain words, something that we will talk about more in our episode today, or supporting death sentences in the judicial process, saying that there's too much tolerance nowadays. I think that this is very much under the shield of authoritarianism, something that we talk about so much, but really is not that center or left wing, it's very right wing. And I, third of I, I kind of want to push back on the idea that that any of these things are inherently right wing. When I hear about building walls to keep people in or keep people out, when I talk, when I hear about banning words, when I hear about banning books, when I hear about prisons, death sentences, and things like that, I I mean, my first thought is the Soviet Union, which is arguably one of the world's, I mean, definitely the world's largest ever socialist state that had a socialist economic system and and was a, a left-wing country, proudly left-wing uh, country in that way, you know? But they're noted for their militarization of the police, cracking down on dissent, brutality, and their authoritarianism. So I just want to contest this idea that authoritarianism is a, is a right-wing thing. Because if you look at a lot of, quote-unquote, like, free market capitalists, they, they might align themselves more with you in terms of the sort of anarchist perspective of, of of the world in the sense that there should be no borders, there should be no government, everyone should be on their own, and markets should be protected from any sort of inf interference whatsoever, leave me alone. Those, you know, those people that wear that, like, don't tread on me, like, flag and shirts and things like that. So I just want to push back on the idea that, that authoritarianism and, and, and the right are somehow interrelated, because I mean, there's been very high profile cases of the left being far more authoritarian than most governments that we see today. Yeah, I think this is what makes politics so interesting is that there can be so many different mashups, you know what I mean? But what you talk about, I think, is really related to the horseshoe theory. And if uh, some of our listeners don't know, it's basically that, you know, Horseshoe theorists see the political spectrum not as a straight line, but more as a horseshoe. So basically, if you go very far left and very far right, 
they kind of meet in the middle and they become sort of the same thing. So I guess this is like a bit of the authoritarianism part is a bit of what you were talking about. Horseshoe theorists, I think you would agree with you. But once again, I do agree that some socialist states can be dictatorships and take up this authoritarianism sort of um, stance. But when we look at the basis of fascist ideology and communist ideology, it is extremely different. And I don't think we can ever kind of just juxtapose these two ideologies. For I just want an example. I, I just want an example of a socialist state that was not a dictatorship or that yeah. did not have strict militarization and authoritarianism. Sure, I'm coming to that. Um, so like in, in fascism, I feel like it's all about hierarchy, all about very clear structures of dominance. And therefore for them, it is extremely natural to have a dictator or an authoritarian system. Um, for communism, anarchism, socialism, it is much less about that. It is much more about equity, freedom, access to basic human rights and services. It is not so much about hierarchy, it is more about giving the power to the people. And the question you pose about an example of a socialist state that has not been a dictatorship, I think it is also, the answer depends on the type of socialist or communist that you ask. Some communists would say that, oh, any country that has a communist party in power is a communist state. I personally don't agree with this. I think that there has probably never been a true communist state that has been successfully implemented in the history of the world. It's a utopia for now. Um, in my opinion, just like true capitalism is also a utopia. <laughs> I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that. Yeah. I was just going to say, you don't get to argue for this utopia and make me argue for the status quo. Yeah. Um, That's not fair. Okay. I'm, I'm glad that we, that we got that sorted. Um, but I think that we can definitely see elements today of countries who are politically and culturally very socialist such as Brazil, right now elected a new president, Lula, that uh, overruled the authoritarian leader, Bolsonaro, but who are economically still very mixed and still definitely have a lot of elements of capitalism, just simply due to the fact that it is so hard not to be a capitalist country in the economic system of the world. It's almost impossible if you don't want to get sanctioned or if you don't want to, you know, if you want to live, it's just simply kind of the, the status quo. Um, so that would be my answer. And the last thing I wanted to sort of talk about was how democracy is indeed falling in the world right now. Um, I feel like a lot of people still look at the US as the sort of, you know, example of democracy, but the United States is actually a flawed democracy, according to the Freedom House Index. For example, they have this sort of um, number system where they value democracies based on certain points, such as human rights, such as plurality in elections. Uh, so the United States is 83 out of 100, whereas Norway is 100 out of 100. It has many issues. And I mean, some scholars even say that the, that the US is leading up into a civil war to that extent, you know. Um, a lot of countries, even in Europe, in the U European Union, look at Hungary, a European Union member. It is a hybrid regime. It is not a democracy, but not yet a 
authoritarian regime, but it is sort of in the middle. Um, and what has the European Union done about this? Very little. I mean, they have may have cut funding for Hungary, but the response has been pretty bleak. And then I really ask myself and the European Union, you know, how much do you really care about democracy if you're still keeping this member in, in your union and kind of not seeing the problems? Um, and also, I wanted to mention Sweden because it's a Scandinavian country and I feel like we look at Scandinavia, especially Europeans look at Scandinavia as this land. Canadians of, too. Yeah, as this utopia, right? And uh, it's definitely not. Uh, the Sweden Democrats, a party with its roots in fascism and Sweden's neo-Nazi movement in the 1990s, actually finished second in the vote behind the Social Democrats. So we see that this very authoritarian-linked ideology and a far-right ideology is really popular nowadays. And I really hope that it ends and we kind of pass through this phase. But right now it's really, really disturbing. And I urge all of you to notice these kind of authoritarian gimmicks in your everyday life and kind of think about, are you really doing the right thing? Yeah, and just to go back to Hungary for a second, um, because I think this relates to, to something I'm going to talk about later on. It's like Viktor Orban, um, I saw you have written down, he's he's starting to like, you know, kick foreignly owned universities and, and education services out. He's being quite strict on like, like banning books and like ensuring that everything fits within the national identity of, uh, of, of Hungary and things like that. And this is a figure that's so clearly a, a, a despot, a d despicable human being. Yet, I don't know if you've noticed, but he's actually been embraced by the mainstream American right wing. He was invited as a speaker at the Conservative Political Action Conference. Um, you know, the same thing that all the big conservative figures in America speak at. He was interviewed in a coddling way by Tucker Carlson. It's very scary to see these types of, of human beings being embraced by the American right. Um, and I think it goes back to what you were saying about America's um, decline, really. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even Trump has photos of shaking hands with Putin yeah. and smiling, right? So it's definitely very scary. And I mean, I'm looking forward to the next US election of what's gonna happen. I really hope that it's not the, the Republican party. No. Yeah. So what are you talking about today? Well, Milda, I think you did a great job of uh, telling us to be warned of our right flank. Um, and I think that all our listeners will take a lot from that. But I'm here to talk about our left flank, uh, specifically um, the cultural sort of wokeness left um, flank of, of the world, which I think is taking a lot of the authoritarian tendencies of the right of people like Orban, of people like Ron DeSantis, and wrapping it up in the language of social justice to do essentially the same thing. So one of the influential books that I've read in my time is Jonathan Haidt's uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. And he basically takes a look at university campuses and he thinks that this priority of of safety, of, of security and, and all that sort of thing when it comes to academic speech and just speech generally on campus is basically ruining 
um, American, a whole generation of Americans. So he identified key, three key untruths that are setting a generation up for failure. And I think these key untruths are the ones that we need to overturn in people's minds to sort of get them away from this this sort of like weird woke mindset. I, okay, I, this is a little sidetracked. I hate being that guy that says like wokeness all the time because then I sound like some sort of deranged like old parent that has just learned uh, the word. But I have a hard time describing it as anything else. Like, I don't know, social justice ideology, but like, no, we're going to stick with wokeness. Bear with me. I'm going to make my point and I'm not going to be one of those crazy people talking about how now gay people have rights and that's just wokeness. Like, that's, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about actual wokeness. Sorry, let's get back to it. The three key untruths that Jonathan Haidt identified. The first is that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. The second is always trust your feelings. And the third untruth is that life is fundamentally a battle between good people and evil people. Those are the three pillars of wokeness as far as I'm concerned. And I'm gonna turn my gaze to something that I believe is a blind spot to many people on the left. And you know, I, it was a blind spot to me until I actually got to university. And this blind spot is the authoritarian tendencies of wokeness and woke culture wrapped in this, in this glitzy packaging of, of social ju justice. So there's been a couple of recent instances at McGill. I don't really want to get into the nitty gritty of all of them, but one that I really want to talk about is one that had institutional backing of the Student Society of McGill University, which is basically our student union. So this was them asking to rescind the professor emeritus status of a McGill anthropology professor named Carl Saltzman. He made some comments that they didn't like uh, in one of his papers. He's a historian on the Middle East. And the SSMU president sent an open letter, it was published in all these newspapers, that demands an overhaul of McGill's academic freedom um, policy to prioritize inclusion and to ban discourse that quote-unquote makes groups feel unsafe, right? And I think what annoys me the most about this is these are the same social justice types who talk about how like, you know, white people need to have this uncomfortable conversations about their role within white supremacy and how they perpetuate white supremacy and colonialism through their very existence. Yet they're wanting to ban these quote-unquote uncomfortable conversations because they're happening to a group of people that they happen to align themselves with. Look, the fact is this is not about compassion. This is not about, um, you know, protecting people's feelings at all. I, if it was about protecting people's feelings, you know, I would at least have a soft spot for it. What it's about is political ideology framed as as protecting people's feelings. Actually, right? I wanted to ask Who gets you, to decide? Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I wanted that. to ask you because this is so interesting. I also don't believe that we should just kind of cancel people. I think we should always have a conversation first if that's possible. And I wanted to ask if they tried to have a conversation with this professor about this paper or was it just kind of like... We don't like it and that's it. It was like a we don't like it and that's it. There was no there was no conversation. There was no there was no debate. Actually the professor was one of those belligerent old men that like wanted to debate, you know what I mean? So 
this a code of speech that you know is fundamentally bound by by safety or you know security or, or or feeling included or whatever is just stupid it's i i say that like i don't say that lightly it's it is it is stupid it's not it's not incorrect it's stupid this is the sort of authoritarian ideology that ron DeSantis is preaching in florida republican governors all across the u.s are doing right now just flipped around recently the state of florida passed a bill that would literally ban making like white people feel bad about racism like you're not allowed to teach that in school so you can't teach any content that would make white students feel bad about racism so this means that when schools are teaching lessons about systemic racism about discrimination about segregation about slavery they cannot make people feel quote-unquote uncomfortable what the heck what does this mean? First of all, what does uncomfortable or unsafe even mean? Right? Like, if you have, like, weak feelings, like, I don't think that's anyone else's responsibility. Like, you can you can avoid that. But, but, but secondly, it's a code of speech that, again, like in Florida, it basically bans teaching about racism. And what happens with the, you know, the woke crowd that are wanting to, to you know, silence certain speech, it happens on, on topics that don't have a clear public consensus yet. I think the battle of, of, of persuasion is something that the woke left does not want to engage in. They want to engage in the battle of, of, of framing people, you know, as, as good versus evil. Um, so this is, um, yeah, like I said, what's happening on the right is, is happening on the left as well. Yet while the right, like, is quite unabashed in the fact that they're like actually fairly racist in their motivations of doing so, or at least maybe not racist, but political in their intentions of doing so. The left conveniently chooses to frame it as like standing against bigotry or standing for like basic human rights or something silly like that. And this is one of Haidt's three untruths that he spoke about that I alluded to earlier in this conversation is that life is a battle between good people and evil people. People that disagree with you about affirmative action are bigots and white supremacists. People that disagree with you about the justice system or defunding the police are bigots. People that disagree with you about universal health care are evil and want people to die. You see how I made a whole bunch of political statements and then followed it up with a value on moral character these are things where people have like legitimate reasons to disagree with you affirmative action there is a debate to be had there we should embrace that we shouldn't shy away from it if you think affirmative action is good i think that what you really should be doing isn't trying to shut the people who, up who are against it you should make your case in favor of it and try and persuade them same thing about the justice system, same thing about defund the police, same thing about healthcare. Like when you frame things as, okay, you're either like with me or you're literally perpetuating white supremacy. Like I've had people say that like me, like look at me. I mean, our listeners can't see me, but I'm not white. I'm a brown guy. People have told me that my ideology on healthcare is perpetuating a white supremacist narrative about health. Like, 
I don't even know how to talk to someone like that. Wokeness and the authoritarian rights are two sides of the same coin. And I really ask a lot of you people that, you know, consider yourself to be woke or on the left, your ideology is not the problem. It's the fact that you don't want people to talk about their ideologies. That's the problem. Those are the authoritarian tendencies coming out um, that I alluded to in, in Milda's rant. And I think that, I think it's really tough to see a bunch of very ordinarily reasonable and people that are motivated with good faith and good intentions just believe that the morally correct thing to do is to not allow other people to talk. And I don't know, this is one of the consistent themes of the podcast. Sounds like I'm, I'm spinning a broken record, but hey, that's life. I, yeah, and I, I mean, in your conversation, I think I just remembered what I was speaking about earlier about the political spectrum and how it's quite yeah. narrow in the U.S., and this just shows it to me because truly, like, I'm a very left-wing person, okay? Like, I'm quite radical with my <laughs> beliefs. And <laughs> me and my friends have never had a conversation about critical race theory or even pronouns or, I don't know, bad words that make us feel unsafe. We've never talked about that. And we have a lot of intellectual conversations. Uh, I feel like, and, and that's the problem with United States politics, I feel like. It's like these two very polarized sides, but truly they're kind of believing in the same things. They're only talking about these very small level issues, yeah. truly. Uh, words in a dictionary and what they mean and how they make people feel. And then, you know, they waste time on these issues instead of talking about real stuff like economics and that people can't afford houses. And it's just so frustrating to me. We're wasting our time, like, debating whether the existence of the debate is legitimate or not rather than having this stupid freaking debate you know what i mean we're like oh is it even okay to have these questions like should we even be talking about this whereas you guys you guys are talking about it right so i don't know i find that i often spend my time so much of my time and energy defending the right of the conversation to exist and less time actually having the conversation and I think that that is the reason why, you know, Western democracies are, are in their decline. There's, they're talking about stupid, irrelevant stuff rather than actually talking about the serious issues. And these serious issues that we're debating on whether we should be debating about are actually quite critical to our life, right? It's the controversial issues that often matter the most. Uh, yeah, so this authoritarian tendency that I'm seeing emerge on university campuses is something that worries me more than anything. The most important issues in the world are the ones that make people feel uncomfortable. Um, and they're the ones that need to be debated the most and not the ones that should be shut down from the public debate or the public conversation. In short, we need to stop pretending that disagreement and words are violence because they're not. Violence is violence. If we want to avoid violence, we need to start talking to each other. Definitely. Um, also, when you were talking about the culture in universities in the US and Canada, I think it hasn't come here in Europe yet. Like, not to the extent that you have it, for sure. We just debate. We don't talk about, is it just a debate? We definitely have a, some people that are like, you're just white supremacist, but it's rare to encounter those. 
Um, and also I feel like when we have these debates about whether something is debatable, we kind of don't even understand the things we're talking about. Like, for example, right now I'm seeing the trend of right-wing groups, far-right groups in the US asking people whether they should teach critical race theory in schools. And when these people try answering that question, it seems like they don't even know what critical theory is, you know? Nobody knows what it is. It's a boogeyman. Like... Yeah, like, and if we would have more conversations and debates, I feel like we would understand truly what it is about, like, what are we teaching? And then we would come to some sort of conclusion, maybe. Yeah, I... It's crazy. I, it's, I don't know. This, this, the state of affairs is uh, quite depressing. And hopefully it gets better. Hopefully something that I've said convinces someone to snap out of it and stop worrying about whether the debate is legitimate and actually having the debate. The thing is, that's harder to do, right? It's very easy to call someone bigoted or to call someone a white supremacist. It's very hard to, like, examine why you believe certain things and, like, identify the underlying assumptions be behind them and then explain why those assumptions you believe are true and, like, you know, examine your, your own internal value system and things like that. Like, that, that is something that's, like, hard to do. And, you know, we're basically choosing the easy way out of things. Yeah, um, I feel like our TikTok comments are a perfect example. People just perfect write, example. you know, you, you're you're bigoted or you're not true. Um, <laughs> check it out, by the way. Our TikTok is really good. And I started making TikToks on my own, by the way. So if you want to check out more content that's extra, follow me on TikTok. Melda is a TikToker. Yeah. I, I don't have that app personally, but I do have Instagram and you guys should totally follow us at wake up call podcast with underscores in between. This has been a fun episode. Uh, we're wrapping up here um, and have a great week and we'll see you very soon.